If you have your Bible, we're going to be uh, mostly in 1 Corinthians 15 today, if you want to turn there. Uh, we have been going through a series called The Cross, and we've talked about what the cross means, what the gospel is, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what that means to us, what that did for us, what, uh, it, it, how, what it means for how we live our lives, and today we're going to uh, finish up that series uh, with the message this morning, and and today all I'm going to do is I want to ask you one question. And some of you hear that and you say, well, this will be short. But uh, for those that know me, uh, it'll take a while to get to the one question. And, uh, and so, uh, but, I, but I think it'll, it won't go too long today. But I want to ask one question. But I'm going to be honest with you. That question is a difficult question. It's weighty and it's uncomfortable. But it's a question that when answered might just save your life. Not just in this world, but in the world to come. So I'm going to, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to walk through this text just kind of phrase by phrase a little bit and get to where we need to be this morning. So let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Now I want to stop there because that's review. Uh, that's what we've done for the last five weeks. The gospel is that the infinite, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful creator God created all things, everything that exists, he created for his glory. And you and I have belittled his name. We have belittled his glory because every one of us at one time or another has believed that our way is better than God's way. Amen? And, and we have all failed to acknowledge him we, and give him glory for the gifts that he's given to us. We have, we have all at one time or another in our lives have questioned his rule and his authority all while using the brain that he gave us and the lungs and the air that he gave us to breathe with. And this is the great blasphemy of the universe that we have belittled God and, and, and not given him the glory that he deserved. And God being just and being right and being holy cannot allow the belittlement of his name. So God responds to the belittlement of his name with hell. And we don't like to talk about hell, but God is that serious about this. He is so big, he is so weighty, he is so magnificent, he is so glorious that even the smallest amount of blasphemy the smallest amount of belittling his name is absolutely worthy of eternal torment. And, and, we, and we know nothing on earth that is that grand. Nothing. There's nothing like that on earth. But this is the God of the universe. And I know hell is wildly unpopular in the world today and churches don't like to talk about it. But here's the, here's the good thing about hell. And I know that's a weird sentence uh, to hear the good thing about hell. But hell, even, even though it is just and even though it is right and even though it is the correct response to the belittlement of God, hell is insufficient to bring about what God really wants in the universe. Uh, and here's where hell is insufficient. Hell is not going to produce worshipers, right? Because it's just not. Because no one who is guilty celebrates justice. If you're guilty, you, you celebrate mercy, right? And if you, Now, if you're completely clean, then you celebrate justice. But the problem is we're all a bunch of dirty fools. 
So we don't celebrate justice that doesn't uh, inspire worship when we hear about hell. So God, not being able to spare wrath, because if he doesn't spend out his wrath uh, for, for things that are for the belittlement of his name, then that means he is unjust. Uh, and, and, and so he's not unjust. He is just. So, so he sends Jesus Christ in the flesh and crushes, crushes him for our sin on the cross. And in so doing... He pours out his wrath against sinful mankind onto the Son. And then God raises him from the dead. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who believe. This is the gospel that you and I have right standing before God, not by our efforts, not by our works, not by our skill, not by whether we cuss or don't cuss, not by whether we drink or don't drink, not by whether we watch this or don't watch this, not by whether we do this thing or don't do this thing. We are justified by God, before God, by the cross of, of Jesus Christ alone. That's the good news. The good news is not that we get to try to be good people. That's not the good news. If anything, that's horrible news if you've ever tried to be good people because it just doesn't work. So this is the gospel, and the gospel leads us to the question that I think is so unbelievably difficult. Let's read again, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Okay, stop there. Here's my question for us this morning, and I'm going to have to unpack it a little bit for us to understand what I'm asking or what, I, what, the, what the whole message is about. Are you standing in the great and glorious gospel that we've just spent five weeks talking about? Are we standing in it? Now listen, I am not asking, do you believe it? I don't want to talk at any level this morning about belief. I'm not asking you if you believe it because you can believe in vain, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I don't want to know if you believe that God sent his son to die for our sins and then raised him to life again on the third day. That's not the question for us today. The question for today is, are you standing in the gospel? Because scripture, over and over and over again, attacks the idea of simple cognitive belief. James says, hey, even the demons believe what you believe, and they shudder, they are not saved. You, you've read the New Testament. How, who could ever get away from the horrific passage in Matthew, which uh, it ought to haunt us at times. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my, many mighty works in your name? Now, they did some pretty incredible things there in that passage. And, and there's this element of belief that's there, is there not? There has to be. But then Jesus looks at those very people and says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, what, what, anybody know what the word is? Lawlessness. Now, I want you to think about that because they just said, didn't we, just, didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, listen, all that amounts to is lawlessness. That's incredible to me. In the end, it tells me there has to be something more than simple cognitive belief. Something knowing in your head and saying, okay, I agree with that. So here's the question. 
Are you standing in the sacrifice of the Son and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to get us to God? Are you standing in the gospel or is this some kind of weird spiritual hobby for you? And, and, and honestly, I cannot comprehend church as a hobby. It doesn't make any sense to me because if church is you, your hobby, this has got to be the lamest hobby ever. You know, you come and sit and talk, listen to me talk for a while, you know, sit here for a couple of hours every week. That's really, listen, if, if it's nothing more than a hobby to you, I've got one thing to say, get a boat. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot more fun. Go fishing, make kites, train dogs, do something. I don't understand just coming here because this is what you're supposed to do on Sunday. I don't understand coming here if there's not love for Jesus in your heart or at least that you want to love him. Are you standing in it or is this just kind of a thing that we do? Do you just believe it in your head with absolutely no carryover into any, any area of your life. You believe, but it does not affect how you do marriage. You believe, but it does not affect how you raise kids. You believe, but it doesn't affect how you spend your money. You believe, but it doesn't affect how you live your life. It doesn't affect how you do your business. It doesn't affect how you engage your neighbors. It doesn't affect how you view the world. It doesn't affect how you view our nation. Are you standing in it? Or is it just a cognitive belief? Now, we've got to be careful here. And here's what I mean. We've got to careful, be careful because the tendency is for us to kind of hear a phrase in church or on a, you know, a, a preacher on a podcast or on television or something, and then we talk about it like we know what we're talking about. And so the worst thing that could, that could happen today is for me to come in here and say, are you standing in it? And then everybody to say, hey, we need to stand in the gospel. And then you walk out of here and you walk in and you find somebody this anytime this week that's struggling and you, and you say, well, let me ask you a question. Are you standing in the gospel or you just, do you just believe it? And they say, what does that mean? I really don't know. I was hoping you could tell me. You know, so, so what does it mean to stand in the gospel? Well, uh, keep your finger there at 1 Corinthians 15 because we're coming back to it. But I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 8. And, uh, and because this is going to, this is going to, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 5. This is going to uh, help us to understand this a little bit. Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. And listen, this is interesting. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So let me try to unpack this for you. The mind set on the flesh is the mind, the heart, the spirit, the body that is not standing on the, in, in the gospel. And it, it could be marked like this. The mindset on the flesh is an independent spirit that has very little love for God and pursues God's stuff rather than God, pursues God's blessings more than they actually pursue God. And, and the mindset on the flesh, it has a suicidal love affair with self-reliance. 
The mindset on the flesh can sit here in here in church week after week after week listening and reading the scriptures and hearing what the scriptures say. But then when you walk out of this room, there's nothing else. If your mind is set on the flesh, you, you may not see that you even have a sin problem. And because you don't see it, there's no need to worry about a change that's the mind set on the flesh. And another way this plays out is, is when, you're, when your mind is set on the flesh, and this, I, you see this, I've seen this in my life in the past. I want you to hear this carefully. When your mind is set on the flesh, you are proud and independent, so you try to overcome sin by yourself. And when you do that, you absolutely, 100% of the time, get caught in this weird cycle of sin and then quasi-repentance and sin and quasi-repentance. And here's what it looks like. You, you can pick this in. It can be a man or a woman addicted to pornography. It can be a man or a woman in some other kind of sexual sin. It can be a man or a woman who is bitter and angry and that bitter, unforgiving wit wickedness just eats them up on the inside and, 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 and it ruins all their relationships and breaks them all down. It can be a person who lies all the time. They just don't even know why they lie. It can be a person that is wicked to their spouse that just says hateful, hurtful, wicked things. There are people who have just no patience with their kid and they just lash out in a second and they do it and, and, and they're going to, thinking to themselves, they're going, something is wrong with me and then they'll come into a church service and hear a sermon that will address their specific uh, sin and then they'll say, this needs to change this needs to move. This needs to happen. And they'll go, all right, I'm not going to do it anymore. And they'll even set some kind of parameters around that. They'll say, well, I'm just going to get rid of my computer. I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm going to avoid this. Now, here's the thing. After a good sermon, a really good one, that commitment will last anywhere from two to three weeks. After a bad one, maybe a couple of hours. What ends up happening is they eventually stumble and fall. Because when you're relying on your own strength to overcome sin, you will stumble and fall. And now they feel like they've let God down. And because they've been relying on themselves, instead of running to him, they run from him. And so then somebody gives them a book or somebody invites them back to a place of worship. And they, or they go some other place. And they hear a message and they say, this has to change. And it's, the cycle starts all over again. I'm not going to do it anymore. It's this suicidal reliance on self. I've got it. I, I'll beat it. I can do it. I'll overcome it. I can handle it. And, and they know they have issues, but they're trying to work through it themselves. They're trying to fix it themselves, and they don't even want anybody to know their junk. They've got it. They'll fix it. They've, they'll make it work. They'll handle it. They'll conquer it. They'll overcome it. They'll get it done. This is the mindset on the flesh. And in the end, the mindset on the flesh leads to one of two things. The first one is that it can lead to despair because you think that all of this is fake, that Jesus just doesn't work for you, and you turn and run, and you walk away from him, and you drop out, and it's all done, and it's all over, and you say, I tried Jesus, it didn't work, when the reality is you never tried Jesus, you just tried your own strength and a dose of religion. 
The second thing it'll lead to is spiritual pride. Because anybody know a type A personality person? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? The person, you know, they're the ultra-disciplined people. They're the ones that go to bed at 6.30 at night so they can wake up at 2 a.m. so they can go work out before they watch every, every single bite of food that they put in their mouth that day. You know, and, and, I mean, they're kind of people that if you ask them uh, what they're going to be doing six years from now on February 17th, they'll say, well, what time? You know? <laughs> some Thai people, here's the thing, some type A people can overcome an outward manifestation of a sin. They can control their actions, but the problem is they can't change their hearts, but they can, by discipline, overcome a specific behavior. So in, in what happens in their case, instead of being filled with despair and walking away and giving up, instead they become pompous and judgmental and they become religious bigots and question everybody else's real discipline and, and, their, and their commitment. So they're the kind of people that say really dumb things like when they speak to an addict, they say, well, why don't you just quit? And, you know, you say, oh, I hadn't tried the just quit plan. You know, thank you for speaking that into me. I feel so much better now. But the mindset on the flesh has very little to do with God. You believe in God? Yeah, I believe in him. I go to church. I believe in Jesus. I believe he rose from the grave. I believe I'm his. But outside of that, uh, that cognitive admission of fact, there's no heart change. There's no life change. There's no love for God, no desire for him, no, no change in how you live your life. It's just I believe that's the mindset on the flesh. Okay, but th there's another mindset, and that's the mindset on the spirit. Now, the mindset on the spirit is constantly acknowledging its dependence on God for everything. The mindset on the spirit does not say, I'll do it, or I can overcome this sin myself, I'll fix it. The mindset on the spirit says, I may be able to control some of my actions, but I can never change my heart. I can never change the things that I want. I can never change my sinful desires. I can't do that. God alone can change my heart. And when your mind is set on the Spirit, you press into God and you claim the grace afforded to you in the cross and you cling to the power of the Holy Spirit and you press in day after day after day after day saying, I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you. You help me, Jesus. I need you. When your mind is set on the Spirit, you know that, you're, that your only hope when all is said and done is God. And that's it. And the mind set on the, on the Spirit lives this way. I need to engage God with how I should live my life. I need to, I need to hear from God about what I should do with my money what job should I take? Lord, I need to hear from you. Uh, uh, Lord, uh, this decision's in front of me. I need your guidance because I, I don't have the wisdom in me to make good choices. I've proven that over and over and over again. I need to engage God. Th this is the person that's going, I, I need him. I need him. It's not just that I want him. It's more than that. It goes deeper. I must have him because I cannot make it without him. Yeah. It's this constant Pressing into him. Are you standing in this? 
you know, over the course of the history of this church and other churches and maybe even in your own life, you know, we have called people at different times to fasting and prayer. You know, especially when we need direction from the Lord or wisdom from God or provision from God, whatever it might be. And whenever we do that, I, I inevitably hear people when we call for this as a church, I inevitably hear people say about how glad they are that they did it. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm just, I don't know, they're a little nervous. I, I just, they, there's something about it that just says, I don't want to fast for 21 days to start off a new year. And, and if you, my body does not like that. I'm telling you right now. Gene is really saying amen up here. But, but, but then they do it and they get into it and they say, man, I'm so glad I did that. I needed that. I didn't even know I needed that, but I, I feel so much closer to the Lord. But here's my question for us today. Why don't we do that more? And I'm not just talking corporately. I'm talking about personally. Why isn't that the norm rather than the exception that shows its head when the big issues come around in our lives? Why aren't we fasting and praying for our children? Why aren't we fasting and praying over our marriages? Why, why does it take some kind of crisis to get us fasting and praying and seeking? Are you standing in it or is it just cognitive belief? Now here's why this is important. Why this is such a big and important question. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll pick it back up in verse 1 again. Paul says, now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, listen to that last phrase, unless you believed in vain. Now, he says, by which you're being saved. And when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about salvation in three ways. It talks about it in past tense, talks about it in present tense. And it talks about it in future tense. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you the Bible college slash seminary words. This cost me thousands, thousands of dollars. I'm giving it to you for free. So pay attention. All right? It's a good deal today. Past. It talks about that moment where we came alive, where we heard the call of the Holy Spirit and we surrendered our lives to Jesus and we were saved. Everybody, you remember that moment in your life where you made a decision to answer the call of the Spirit and you got saved? You remember that moment? That's, that's called justification. That was the moment where you went before Him and you, you because of what Jesus did, you, you uh, uh, confessed your sin and you were made right and you were given right standing with God and made a, to, to at just as if you had never sinned. And, and, and in that instant, you were made right by God through His work by no work of your own. That's the, the past tense. But then there's... The fact that justification leads to the present tense of salvation, which is called sanctification. Sanctification, you know, people use, we, we use the word holiness with this, but, but, but sometimes holiness has this baggage that it carries because people have turned it into things that it's not. Here's what it means. It means that God is at work in us, making us more and more and more like Jesus. And where justification has occurred then sanctification will follow. And where there's no sanctification, there's my fear, there's a fear there that maybe you never really actually found any justification. But then anyway, that sanctification then leads to glorification. 
And that's the future. That's the day when either Christ returns or, or we uh, go into his presence by death. That's that, that moment where our bodies will change, that, our, that we are forever sealed in his presence. That's the glorification. Those are the three stages of salvation. The moment when you're saved and made right with God, and then the process of becoming like Jesus, that's part of being saved. We are being saved now. And then when we make it in his presence, that's even spoken about in past tense in the Bible because it's so absolutely certain that if you are in Christ, you will be with Jesus. But what he's talking about here is talking about the present tense. He said, in which you are being saved. So this passage is talking about sanctification, that by standing in the gospel, he is making us more and more and more and more like Jesus. Now, you've got to pay attention to this. I can't be any more serious with you than I'm being right now. The reality is, some of us in this room are standing nowhere near the gospel. Because we are self-reliant. We are handling it ourselves. We have very little to no love of God. We have no desire for Him outside of these walls. We simply do church and then we're wondering why we're not growing, not healing, not getting stronger, not becoming more Christ-like. Well, it's because in the end you're not standing in it. It's by standing in the gospel, by being reliant, by pursuing, by humbling ourselves that we become more and more and more like Jesus and that we begin to feel the weight of who he is and his glory and his majesty and the wonder of who he is. I'm going to give you an example. For my wife and I, as it I'm sure it is for many people, the first few years of our marriage now, they weren't horrible, but they were no picnic, especially for my wife. <laughs> you know, I was a sinner, and she was a sinner, and all of a sudden, we're living in the same house. Anybody relate what I'm talking about? When you first get married, and you, you think, oh, this is going to fix everything, and then you realize, uh, this didn't fix anything. This just complicated everything. By the way, I, I believe marriage is one of the greatest tools that the Lord uses in our lives to make us more like Jesus. But anyway, that's a whole different message. You know, we, we were living in the same house, married, and there was just some things we didn't know. We came from completely different family backgrounds. Uh, I can tell you, how many of you ever seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? You ever seen that movie? It's one of my favorite movies. If you haven't seen it, you'll get a kick out of it. But if you've seen that movie, my family was the quiet, conser conservative family. Julie's family is the Greek family. <laughs> She's not going to argue. Am I telling you the truth? I'm telling you the truth. You know, and so we had, we had a different way of, of seeing life, different way of doing life. We came from different backgrounds. Yeah, you know, I mean, without, I don't want to embarrass my wife or anything, but she came from a broken home. I came from a home where my family, you know, my parents, when my dad passed away, were married almost 58 years. So you compound the fact that we come from different places and we're both broken sinners living in the same house. You compound that with the fact that I was a stubborn, set in my ways, arrogant, selfish man, and you've got a recipe for a lot of pain. And in the middle of that, 
Because I was a pastor, because I'd studied scripture, I was completely aware of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5 about my role as a husband. And if you don't know Ephesians 5, it tells us husbands, it says, you will love your wife like I, Jesus, have loved the church in that I gave my life for her in the most brutal, horrific, sacrificial way. And I knew that, but I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to. I'll I'll tell you what, if she'll do this, this, and this, then I'll do that. And God says in his really gentle way to me, he says, well, uh, he would say, well, you want fair? You want fair? Because I can give you fair, but it ends up in eternal damnation for you. So I don't think you want fair. I think you want grace. I think you want mercy. And as I have shown to you uh, that love and that grace and the mercy, you will most definitely show it to your girl. And and I felt the weight of that because I didn't want want to die to myself. And, And yet this is one of the ways that we see the Holy Spirit working in us because what ended up happening is I, I didn't want to do it, but I knew I had to. You know, we're, we're innately self-centered. And when we get married, that's one of the hardest things that we have to learn is that now my marriage, let me give you, if you're newly married or you're going to get married or you know somebody's going to get married, you, you need to understand this. Marriage is not 50-50. It's not compromise in the middle. Marriage is, I go into it and I give her 100%, whether she gives 100% to me or not. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that because we're, we're naturally self-centered. There was this constant conflict in me with my flesh wanting only what I wanted and the spirit inside of me saying, uh-uh, that's not where we're going to go with this. And, li- and listen, there are, even in the, in the midst of trying to live that out, there are definitely days, uh, many days I did not hit it out of the park. There are many days I didn't even swing the bat at all. There are some days I didn't even show up at the ballpark. I mean, that's just the reality of it, okay? And there, there are days that I failed, no doubt about that. But by standing and going, okay, I need your help. Lord, I need you to heal me so that I can do this. Lord, wh- where do we go? What do I do? And, and when you're walking in accordance to the Spirit, you, you get this guidance from it. And so finally, Julie and I went to a marriage encounter. If you've never been to one of those, it's beautiful and painful all at the same time. Uh, especially for most of us guys, because we just, uh, let's just face it, guys, especially when it comes to relationships, sometimes we are just absolutely clueless. <laughs> I see ladies in the, you know, I see ladies in here going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and guys are going, what? <laughs> and so it was there that I discovered a lot of the junk inside of me that was really hurting the girl that I love more than life itself. And he was the one that spoke to our hearts about going there. He, he spoke through my wife and said, can we go? And I went and it was painful, but I began to realize some things that I was doing that was causing pain in my life and in my wife's life. And I began to realize, listen, I can't do this on my own. Lord, would you please help me? And there's still a lot of days 
that I don't hit it out of the park. There's still a lot, a lot of days that I stumble and fall just trying to get out of the batter's box and I don't even make it to first base. There are days that are like that, but it's this process of standing in and saying, Lord, heal me, help me to be the kind of man you want me to be. And by standing in him, he sanctifies and he purifies and he grows. And, and listen, it's not all easy because he chisels away. Anybody ever been under the chisel of the Lord? And, and how many of you have had this experience? Sometimes he brings the hammer down. See, standing in this gospel is the process of dying to self. And the way I can describe it to you is it is miserably beautiful. And I'm not trying to lie to you. I'm not trying, because listen, dying to yourself is not pleasant. There's a lot of great things that come out of it. But that process, I mean, the, the whole makeup of our DNA is I don't want to die. I want what I want. And God has to take his chisel and he has to chisel our grip off of that. But then... Here's the thing, after years and years of him working in us and years and years of us standing in and saying, Lord, help me, help me, help me. I need you, I need you, I need you. Then after years and years of that, then you get to the place where you're like, oh, I can't wait to die. And you start sounding like Paul. You know what he said? He said, to me, for me to live is Christ. And he said, the next part took a long time for him to get there. And to die is gain. You, you know, those, it's one of those crazy texts that you want to be able to say, but you know you really can't say honestly. You know, you're like, for me to live is Christ. And I can't remember the rest of the verse. <laughs> so why is this so huge? It's huge because if you don't hold fast, and stand in this gospel, gospel, according to Paul, you might find that you have believed in vain. And that part is hard to understand because we have to figure out what he means. Is he saying that believing in vain means that while I'm here on earth, I don't get the fullness of Jesus in this life? Or is he saying that believing in vain means that when I die, my cognitive belief is not enough and that I'm part of that crowd that's like, wait a minute, didn't I preach in your name? And, and the Lord to have the Lord say, depart from me, uh, I, I don't know you. Which is it? And so I spent a lot of time kind of break that one down and, and trying to find loopholes in it. And, and, and I'm afraid there are no loopholes. The answer is both. Both. Are you standing in this gospel? That's my question to you. Not are you good people. Good people are overrated. It's not do you tithe because God can't be bought. Are you standing in this gospel? Are you pursuing him are you chasing his presence are you surrendering your life in new ways every day are you pressing in are you being obedient all right so what do we do and i don't know if i can coach you all the way through this but i'll do my best when the holy spirit we're gonna close with this when the holy spirit is living inside of us we will start to hear from him Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Like there will be these thoughts 
And there are thoughts that sometimes we don't want to do. And a lot of times, that's how I know it's him. And here's how I think it works out in this environment. For example, I'll be up here preaching and I'll say something like, here, this is an issue of the heart. One of the ways for us to deal with us, you know, maybe get in a small group or, or, or you know, get into a, a relationship, an accountability relationship with somebody and, and, and learn to bear your soul in honesty. And then something, you hear that something in your spirit says, I need to do that. That's the move I need to make. Now, now come on, uh, seriously, what part of your flesh is saying that? What part of your flesh is saying, let's be vulnerable and finally surrender? The, the, let me give you the answer. No part of it. No part of it. Because, listen, I, I want you to understand this. The flesh never surrenders. It always has to be killed. Or, or I'll, I'll mention like this morning, hey, my marriage was not getting better. So we went someplace to get help. And you're going, oh, my marriage is not getting better. I need to do something. Do you, do you think that might just be the still, small voice of the Spirit going, come on, let's get out of this. Aren't you tired of this? Those are just two examples I could give you. I, I don't know where he's leading you. We, we talk about confession all the time, and some of you are thinking, I need to confess to, to a close friend about what's going on in my life. And, or we talk about obedience all the time, and some of you are think, thinking, man, I need to be obedient. Well, that's the Spirit of, the whole, of God saying in you, in you, saying, this is how we stand in this, in obedience. And, and where you feel like you can't obedient, be obedient, then you just throw yourself on God all the more. So here's my question, and I cannot answer it for you. Are you standing in this gospel, or do you just believe it in your head? All right, would you, would you bow your head, close your eyes? Would you do me a favor this morning? With your heads bowed and eyes closed, to the very best that you can, would you just quiet your heart just a little bit here? Just kind of quiet your spirit. Search your heart for that voice that you know. Search for that voice. Some of you won't need long to, to search. What is that voice saying? What is he calling you to? Is it confession? Have you been battling a sin for a long, long time? Have you been living a lie or have you been pretending? Have you been trying to overcome that with your own strength and, and you've been hiding it from everybody around you? And, and, and maybe that voice is saying it's finally time to come clean about some of that to your wife or to your husband or to your friends or to a group of men or women that you do life with? Is it calling you to an act of obedience? Have you been kicking against the commands of God? Is, has he been saying, this is what's next for you and, and you just refuse? You either don't trust because of fears about resources or you don't want to move or you don't want to do this or you don't know how this would work and so you just haven't walked in obedience. Is it saying to you about finally getting help? There are times when we have to get help. There are times when it's well beyond us. There's no shame in that only celebration. Is it finally getting help? Maybe, maybe it's talking to you about finally letting go. 
because you've been angry with somebody for hurting you. And I know you think if you let it go that you're letting them off the hook, but I promise you that the truth is they're not on the hook, you are. You're the only one that's hurt by that is yourself. Maybe you need to give that over to the Lord. Maybe you need to go to that person and make it right. Maybe you're, you're even angry at God and you need to let go of that. So, where are you being led today? What is that voice saying to you? If you're standing in the gospel, you'll hear what he says and you'll say, Lord, help me. I need you. My hope is that you would listen. My hope is that you would follow. My hope is that you would stand in it and that by standing in it, you would be saved, that you would hold fast through the difficult parts of the process, through that mo- those moments where he's chiseling away, through those moments where the hammer comes down, where the discipline of the Lord comes because he loves you, that you hold fast through those difficult parts so that you won't believe in vain. You know, honestly, the most difficult part of being a pastor, being a preacher or a teacher, the most difficult part for me is that all I can do is read the text and talk about it. And I can't make you make steps. So I promise you, you've been prayed for this week. I know some of you are going to have to confess things that are difficult. I know some of you are going to have to swallow pride and, and go and, and ask forgiveness for somebody. I, I know I understand these things. I, I, I prayed for your courage and I prayed for God's grace towards you in that. And today, if you're here and you say, Pastor Dave, I hear the voice of God. I know what I need to do. And I just want to, I want you to pray for me because I want to confess that I can't do this on my own. I need him to help me. And if that's you this morning, we just right where you are without hesitation, just slip your hand up right where you are. Oh yes, there are hands all over the place.